There are three certainties in life. Death, taxes, and the need for better interoperability in healthcare technology. Yep, the I word. The thing that's going to magically fix all of our problems that we have in healthcare. And since we've been talking about the lack of interoperability in healthcare for so long, it obviously means it must be super hard to do, right? I mean, otherwise we would have would have done it already. Okay, but then what? Let's say we're at maximum levels of interoperability. What happens now? What does it actually mean? And why is it so hard to do anyway? Well, today I'm chatting with the main man from Fluffy Spider Technologies, Robbie Carp. And in this episode, we're deep diving into interoperability and what it's all about. We're also talking about the software engineering capabilities in healthcare technology. And yes, I promise we will find out why they're called Fluffy Spider Technologies. Collaboration starts with the conversation team, Health Tech. Let's make it happen. Welcome to Talking Health Tech, a podcast and membership community about technology in healthcare. Here's your host, Peter Birch. With me today is Robbie Carp, CEO and founder of Fluffy Spider Technologies, who are enabling clients to deliver better healthcare through interoperable digital health software solutions. He's got a background in software development. He's an experienced technology executive, serial entrepreneur, CEO, board member, and speaker. Hey, Robbie, how are you going? I'm really well, thanks. How are you? Super duper. Thanks for coming on the show. It's good to chat in this capacity. Can't wait to learn a bit more, but tell me, give me the spiel. Tell us your background and what's brought you here today. My background is as a software engineer. So I've got a degree in computer science and mathematics from New South Wales University. I worked for years as a software engineer in mission critical type environments, things like defense, real-time systems, BHPs, steelworks systems, Vodafone's backend networks. There was a whole lot of them, air traffic control systems, all of those kinds of things. I, I mean, I started doing that straight out of university. I don't have a background in healthcare or medicine. But I did that for a long time, all of the engineering. And I started Fluffy Spider in, you know, 1995. At the time, it was really just me. And then eventually we grew. Fluffy Spider itself then started to work very heavily in consumer electronics. We got what you would call one of those magic phone calls one day. Seriously, the phone line rang, it was Toshiba, and they wanted us to do some work for them. This is for Toshiba Japan, working through their Australian R&D centre. They wanted us to do some work for, they were exploring new kinds of consumer electronics devices. They wanted us to do some of that work. It started quite a long relationship with, it was the laptop group, the digital media group, they called themselves in Japan. And I was back and forth from Japan a lot at the time. And it culminated in us being on display on a new kind of device that nobody had ever seen before. It was effectively a tablet, but this was in 2008 at the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas, you know, front and center at the Toshiba stand. It was just unbelievable. From there, we identified key piece of technology that we developed and then we licensed it. And we started to work with other consumer electronics companies. We started to work with semiconductor companies. 
There were three main areas we worked in with TVs, set-top boxes and the associated chipsets. And the other one, which ended up being our biggest, was in FPOS terminals. And we ended up licensing this technology into, there's a company in the US called Verifone. They're probably the biggest payment terminal company in the world. And we licensed key technology to them. It's embedded into hundreds of millions of payment terminals all over the world. You would have used them. When you go to the supermarket and you swipe your card, you're either paying on a Verifone terminal or one of their smaller competitors. So you probably would have used our technology at the time. But the, the thing was that all of this was overseas. None of it was in Australia because at the time in Australia, there really wasn't any kind of a manufacturing industry. That's really the, the background to Fluffy Spider. I want to know how that transitions into healthcare in a second, but let's get this one out of the way. Fluffy Spider, you know, I actually haven't even asked you before. So this will be me learning the, the, the background to the name Fluffy Spider technology as well. What's with the name? And I was trying to think of a, a really cute story to tell around it, but I'll, I'll actually tell the real story behind it. So remembering that I was employed as a software engineer, I sort of wanted to go it alone. I wanted to go contracting at the time. And this is in the mid nineties. And I wanted to go contracting because the money was better. So to go contracting, you needed to have a, you know, a vehicle, a company set up to do it. It was 1995. The dot-com bubble hadn't even started really yet. Names were weird. <laughs> the web was just up and coming. So I thought, oh, maybe we'll in, you know, use the word spider. And realistically, what I actually thought would happen, I, I never imagined it would go anywhere. And it was sort of like a joke that I thought me and maybe the payments department, the consulting contracting firm would look at and have a bit of a chuckle at, you know. And and honestly, that's that's all that really happened. And and it turned out that you know, I did get a contract and then I got another contract and then I got another contract again and I had to employ some people and it sort of really went from there. But again, remember, this was the 90s, a little bit later on. I mean, weird names were almost par for course. A little bit later on, we found a company in Sweden. They were a direct competitor of ours for the graphical user interface technology, but they were like in another league. They were so much bigger, they probably didn't really know we existed. They were called the Astonishing Tribe. You know, these kinds of names were almost par for course at the time. Well, I mean, you got to stick with it now. You, if you changed it, it would be, no one would know who you are. And I think it's a great name that, that stands out. And it's got a good acronym too as well with the FST. So it works. I think it's it's good. It's good. So tell me more then, FST, Fluffy Spider. Like, How does it get involved into healthcare from what you were talking about before with the, the technologies around payments and terminals and other bits and pieces? Yeah, no, no, sure. So... The semiconductor industry overseas started to consolidate. So, you know, what I mean is that, so we were licensed to like ST Micro and those guys, and they, they started to consolidate the different companies. That kind of market got smaller for us. And at the same time, the manufacturing industry in Australia started to pick up. We started to work with very innovative Australian startup at the time. You would know them, they're VisionFlex. That was maybe about six years ago. And they were developing this telehealth hub. Now, the interesting part there is that the initial concept of their products were about telehealth and taking video streams and data and all of that sort of thing, putting them from one place to the other place and moving video, you need some special skills and chipsets and that kinds of thing. From the inside, their products kind of looked like a set-top box. 
So at, at the time, at least. That's how we got into that in the first place, because we had expertise with some of the media decoding chipsets that were required and the technologies that were needed to drive them. But really, it opened our eyes to the whole healthcare technology system in Australia. We, we really got a better understanding of the digital health landscape and, you know, all, all of the sorts of things that, you know, are going on there, the problems to be solved. And then going a little bit further, we were working with them for a little while. And the one that really resonated with me, the, the thing that I became interested in was that of interoperability. So how, how is it that we can have all of these sorts of systems that can't talk to each other? I found that to be oh, remarkable, to say the least. About three years ago, Fluffy Spider as a business shifted its focus entirely to digital healthcare and specifically looking at ways we can work on that interoperability piece. Got it. As I understand as well, your jam isn't creating an app then nurses or clinicians use on the front end. You're working alongside other software partners like powering the kind of behind the scenes stuff that they do? For right now. So yeah, there's no apps as such, unless somebody wants us to build an app, which we, we are doing actually. But yes, for the time being, you can think about us as being a software partner. So, so let, let me maybe tell you a little bit without mentioning any names, some of the few of the projects that we're working on. In one particular case, we're developing a customized workflow for one of the state health departments. But in this particular project, what they want to do is take medical record data from one of the EMR systems. They have a specific workflow that has some forms that need filled out. So adding data into this record and then packaging it up, sending it back to the same medical record system and also sending it off to some other destinations. This is an existing system. So it's using HL7 and, and all of the existing kinds of technologies around interoperability. For another customer, they're actually doing something similar all of their own. They have a web application. They are working with, you know, a number of clinicians. So they're taking the data from the patient management systems, bringing it into their web application, they filling out forms, that sort of thing. They're replacing a paper-based system with something that's automated, nice and easy to use, and it, it will save time. It'll save money. Things won't get lost. When things get digitized, they can be searched, indexed, and all of that kind of thing, obviously. And for that one, we're just doing the integration piece for that one. You know, and again, in, in, on one end, it's HL7 and, you know, on the other end, it's uh, using fire because we're sending stuff to different sorts of systems and it's, you know, the payloads adjacent. And I'm, I'm mentioning the sorts of technologies because, you know, I think that your listeners will tune into those. So those are kinds of some of the things that we're doing. So in some cases, really what we're doing is we just do a part of it. So we might just do the integration or even just provide resources. We do that as well, just augmentation placing our integration specialists on someone's team. But in other cases, we will do the, the whole end-to-end, -end, the entirety of the system. So we'll talk to the stakeholders, we'll gather technical 
requirements. We'll put together proposals. We will, you know, put together whole end-to-end solution quotes with timelines and support and all of that kind of stuff as well. So it really kind of depends on the engagement. Yeah. Okay. Your customers are both like the technology vendors and hospital systems or, you know, the providers of healthcare or are some partner, like there's all different stakeholders involved. Like what's the, what's the mix there? We really do address the entirety of the digital health ecosystem. And I like the word ecosystem, by the way. And I think one of the things that I think is really important is your place in that, because I think that's critical. And I think that's something we're starting now through you to do well. Uh, let me just say, we do address the entirety of the ecosystem. So we do work with small startups. Okay. And and in some cases, it's honestly, it's as simple as providing them advice. How do we go about even setting this whole thing up? What do I need to do to get regulatory compliance? Well, I don't know. I'm not a regulatory compliance expert, but I know who is. I can help facilitate those kinds of things. It can be a thin end of a wedge at one point. You know, in some cases, we've got some people who talk to us just to bounce ideas of of us, that kind of thing. They have their own software teams in some cases. We will manage their software teams. So there's that. And then the other end is, you know, the startup might be a little bit more established. I'm trying to think of very specific examples of people we're talking to, and they want this whole kind of entire end-to-end solution developed. They might have some grant funding that they need to utilize in that case. But in other cases, and we're slowly kind of, I guess, working more with the larger organizations. So now we're registered to provide software development services to New South Wales Health, for example. We're working with very, very large company that we're on their register to be able to provide services to their customers. I think there's a definite need for that kind of, call it advisory or consulting. But as soon as you say advisory and consulting, you think of the very big organizations. And for a startup, and also for those that might not have a fully formed pitch or proposal or or like kind of like here's the the scope, being able to bounce off, you know, a group that has done it before or had exposure in the space for a long time and a good network, there's a lot of value there. How big is the team now, by the way? The team is about 15 to 20 people. Out of that, engineering is the biggest part. And then the sales marketing and, you know, strategy and the the advisory and all that. We've got our own advice up as well, legal and what have you. But what I wanted to say was the word you were looking for before might be more like plumbing. This is the way I think of it. So, okay. Like, for example, in a lot of the startups in particular, they have a core technology that they're working on. They might be building some sensor-based data gathering hardware and they're able to gather certain measurements of, you know, the body, let's say. They have their own specialists that are expecting that they're going to take that data and they're going to process it and put it through machine learning algorithms and generate AI algorithms and work out certain things. They probably have a medical advisory board that are trying to guide them in a particular direction and they know where they want to get. They're trying to solve actually particular medical problems. And if you notice what they're not thinking about in that entire sentence is how that fits into the rest of the healthcare system. 
okay? Because, look, to be fair, I mean, that isn't there and nor should it be. You know, things like integrating into other systems, it's a specialist skill. I mean, I look at it from a technical point of view. So for me, things like HL7 and FHIR, this isn't their core focus. Their core focus is on solving a particular problem. So it should be. Things like FHIR, HL7, whether the payload is XML or JSON, I mean, yeah, okay. I mean, they need to solve that, but do they need to solve it themselves? We as an organization, me as a computer programmer, just, and just by the way, I get confused between developer, programmer, software engineer, computer scientist. Okay, so, you know, I, I, I will swap between those. As a software engineer or developer, or whatever, I understand those different sorts of technologies. So there are standards, there are protocols. We need to understand what the protocols are. We need to adhere to the standards. We need to convert between one standard to the other standard. How do you get an HL7 payload into a JSON format to get it to off to fire or, you know, even to a REST, uh, you know, simple REST kind of API? Okay, it needs to be understood, but, you know, we know how to understand that. Does our startup customer who is trying to solve a problem on a limited budget need to work out how it's going to integrate to you know, a number of different sorts of other systems. I don't think so. I mean, maybe over a period of time they can gain that skill in-house, but maybe not. And even with this government departments that we're working with, for them to get those specialist skills, it's really difficult. When, from a founder's point of view, cash runway is, you know, front of mind, time to market, time to get customers in, being able to lean on experts and those that, have have done things before, it makes sense. And over that period of time is a good investment to do it right up front. So then they've got the opportunity to scale off the top of it. So I can absolutely see the need there for many to engage with, with someone yeah. like yourselves. Yeah, yeah, no, no, absolutely. If you've been kicking around this industry a bit like me, or maybe even you're brand new to digital health, you've probably worked out that health tech is not an individual sport. Whatever you're trying to achieve, whether you're delivering healthcare for patients or you're building health technology or perhaps you're helping deploy solutions across health systems, you need a tribe, a community of like-minded individuals who just get it that if we're going to transform healthcare, then technology is going to play a huge part in it. So to learn and connect about health tech and level up your game, consider joining our THT Plus membership community. We've got options for every stage of growth, whether you're a solo individual or a startup or scale-up company. As an individual, you get access to our exclusive community forum, you get a warm intro to two other members from me each month, you get free access to our quarterly virtual summits and a bunch of other exclusive goodies. Companies can bring team members into the community, plus you get a presence on our website as a THT Plus member, you can post content like news events and jobs, and of course, we love to showcase our members. So when you join as a company THT Plus member, you'll get to appear on this podcast with your very own episode. This podcast is made possible through the support of our members. It's literally the heart of everything we do. So consider joining as a THT Plus member. You can join anytime online. Just go to talkinghealthtech.com slash THT Plus. We're talking about the need for this integration and the, the, the plugging in with the rest of the the health ecosystem. We've kind of touched on it a little bit or, or made a few assumptions here. This interoperability, the I word, it, I mean, we, we throw it around a lot, Robbie. What's Let's set the foundation. What's your interpretation of it all in healthcare? Let, let me start by saying again, I don't have a medical background. I'm a technical guy. So I'm looking at this from a technical point of view. For me, it's about making the different parts 
the software and the hardware that comprise our healthcare system talk to each other seamlessly, exchanging data so that the healthcare and, you know, hence health, the population's health overall is improved. From a technical point of view, not to trivialize what it is that we do, but I don't think that we understand it. It's, it's, I won't say it's easy to do, but it's not that hard to do. It just requires knowledge and adherence to protocols and, and a process that we can do it to get to do it. But I think that interoperability as a whole is a bit more complicated than that. There's all the extra bits around it that, you know, there's technically the process of connecting different parts together. It's just a matter of leaning into the technologies, but healthcare is a contact sport, as I heard recently at an MSIA conference. So they're all the the people involved, all the information that's sent around. I was about to say, I was about to say, one of the things that, uh, you know, and I heard this recently also at a conference. So let's just take FIRE, which is the the popular up and coming modern standard for healthcare interoperability. Okay. Now to implement FIRE on a large organization, it moves away from a technical problem to a domain problem because what you need to do technically is put together an implementation guide. The implementation guide really defines what is the information that we're sharing and how, you know, then the technical guys go away and work out how to represent that in a technical way. But the first step is to work out what it is that we're sharing. That requires everybody in the organization to basically put their important information. They have to come together and define what it is that they think is important. Okay. And these are not technical people. To find that technically, they need to be led into a way of explaining very precisely what it is that they're looking for or what information do they want to receive, what information they want to get. It becomes we're kind of herding the non-technical people into forcing them into some sort of a technical way of doing things almost. I find when you do that as well, people's frame of reference for what they want is sometimes just like things they've used before. It's hard to get out of that thinking of what they've seen before and what they picture the solution looking like versus what problem they're actually trying to solve in the first place and kind of taking a little bit of a helicopter view of it. Let me give you another example. Coming back to this large state health system that I talked about previously, there's more than one way to solve a lot of these problems, technically, I mean. And we feel in our case, that it's our responsibility to offer solutions that best suited to the customer. I know that might sound obvious, but it's something that needs to be said. And not only that, we want the solutions that we propose to be always forward-looking because we already know before they start that if they start by saying they want A, B and C, it's going to, you know, in six months and one year and a year and a half, it's going to need a whole lot of other enhancements and integrations and other things as well. So this stuff has to be always forward-looking. So in this particular case, the thing that we ended up proposing to them had a cloud-based component to it. Now, this was kind of, I know that cloud computing and interoperability, they do go hand in hand, the conversations go hand in hand. We had to be champions for cloud computing now inside this organization. That worked out perfectly well. They were like completely open to it. They thought it was a great idea. That's turned out really, really nicely. But that's not always the case because as you just said, I mean, people look at solving problems in the way that they've always tried to solve problems. And that's, you know, when you're looking at new technologies, new ways of doing things, sometimes that becomes an issue. I mean, cloud computing in particular, when you look at that together with 
adherence to the protection of patient privacies in particular, people think of that as a risk. It's actually the other way around, but I won't go into that right now. You're forced to help them think these through and explain why. Look, and, and to be perfectly honest, in some cases, isn't possible. Interoperability, and again, this is from my feeling as a technical person, there are standards like FHIR that will offer good ways to share data in a secure way, specific data, that kind of thing. Interoperability as a whole has to notionally include existing systems and existing systems may use older protocols. The point is to share the data, okay, to share it in a secure and easy to exchange way. If there's an existing system there and it's talking HL7 and that's what you've got to use, you can't change all of the systems overnight. It's just not practical. You need to work with what's there. So interoperability for me is the entirety of it. I think we've touched on this a little bit, but you know, to really drive it home, I feel like in this interoperability discussion generally across the industry or ecosystem, we talk a lot about how much we desperately need interoperability of healthcare data we can sometimes have less conversations about why it's important. What problems exactly are we trying to solve when it comes to interoperability in healthcare? What we're trying to do is ultimately offer secure access to and secure storage of our health data. That's really the point. We're trying to bridge a number of gaps. Again, I, this is a contrived example, but it's quite realistic in one sense. So if let's just say you've got a bunch of, you know, new sensors and uh, wearables and that kind of thing. And you have an app on your phone, it tracks what you're like. So, you know, it'll measure your blood pressure and your SpO2 and all, all of the things, you know, maybe even stuff that isn't normally tracked now. Okay. All of the data coming out of these kinds of wearables are fed through machine learning algorithms to generate AI algorithms so that they can monitor you. And, and there's a term called precision healthcare, which is coming up as well, that is about looking at what's normal for you. So I, I know my blood pressure is normally a little bit on the lower side. It's not low blood pressure. It just sits a bit under what people normally have. That's normal for me. My heart rate is probably somewhat different to yours. There's a normal for me. That's not the normal for you. Okay. So let's just say I've got all of this stuff. If I get an alert that something is out of range for me, the AI algorithm has worked out that something isn't quite right. So what am I going to do? I'm probably going to call my doctor. And even if my doctor subscribes to these AI algorithms and alerts, either in a notional sense or a practical sense, he gets the alerts too, perhaps. What he's going to do is either one of two things. He's either going to say, come in and see me or go to the hospital. Now, if I'm going to the hospital, I'm back in the system. Okay. And if I'm in the system, they are going to measure everything again. And they're going to baseline it off what is the standard population normal, not my normal. They don't have access to the AI algorithms. But they don't know what's normal for me. I mean, not to diminish what it is they are capable of and what they do and what they achieve and their outcomes. And that's not what I'm saying, but there is a gap in there that we could fill by having interoperable systems. Look, as I started by saying, it's a contrived example, but we want to make sure that the information is captured and 
the information for me is able to travel with me on my journey through my life as I get older. And so my health can be managed in a way that's specific to me over a long period of time. And we're nowhere near that yet. We haven't had long enough to capture that data, but I, I see that as something that's going to happen. And I want all of that information to be available to my next GP. I have the same GP for the last maybe 20 years. He's, he's an incredible guy. He's honestly so switched on. I will unfortunately probably have to change GPs at some point. Okay. And what I would really like is all of the information that's been gathered about me to come along with me. Like he does take notes and they are on a computer. Sure. But I may not go to that clinic. I don't know. I want all of that stuff to be available to me. Besides that, there are new sorts of ways of dealing with certain types of issues that are new technologies coming out, being driven by, again, I'll give you an example. In the US, there's a big push to move away from x-rays because of the radiation links to cancer. So they try to move away from that as much as possible. Isn't that good? There's a company that is developing these devices that strap onto your limbs that are broken and they use ultrasound to check in real time how the healing process is going. So instead of going to the doctor once every three months and him poking it saying, does it hurt? You know, okay, come back and see me in three months. They will monitor it in real time. Who knows what else they're going to find? They're going to find stuff and they're going to develop algorithms from these data readings that we're going to use for the benefit of health overall. So that all of this needs to somehow be captured going forward so that we all have a healthier life. For me, that's the purpose of interoperability. Yes. Yeah, nice. That makes sense. I like it. Thank you. Yes. And that's a good way to think about it. That's a good framework for thinking about why we, we harp on about and why it's important, why we continue the, that pursuit. So I think that's really good. There's a lot of challenges in implementing technology and doing these things, though, in healthcare. Talk to me about some of the challenges that you face and we face across the healthcare system when it comes to implementing and delivering solutions across health. I'll, I'll talk about our specific challenges. So the biggest one we're facing right now actually is a skills shortage. It's hard to get software people, specialist software people in particular. The job market in Australia for employers is actually brutal. Salaries are increasing, costs of livings are increasing, electricity, all of the things are increasing. All of that then also translates to increased prices for every single bit and piece. We're very fortunate. We have an incredible team. They're cohesive and we produce some amazing work. I also have in our particular case, an added complexity that and I know this is not a popular opinion either, but I like to have my guys together in the same room a few times a week. I can go on about why I think that's important another time. But I, I really do think it, it's important that obviously limits who we can hire, okay? Because we also get asked the question very routinely, where are our developers? Having developers that are offshore would be problematic for us as a software business, a software services business in particular. So anyway, that's our biggest challenge right at the moment. So by the way, we're hiring. <laughs> Regular users of the uh, Talking Health Tech uh, job board, that, that's important. Yeah, no, 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 absolutely. And I, I think we're actually going to put a bunch of stuff on there. We just put some stuff up on the website this week. Okay. 
The next challenge that I see is there's a lack of willingness to change. And I went through this when I was talking about us being champions of cloud computing. I mean, some of this should be a given. I mean, I'm a technical guy. And as I said, I can talk about why cloud computing is more scalable, safer, you know, more secure for all of the the reasons than these on-premises systems another time. But I feel like we should be past that, but we're not. And so that's another challenge. Coming back to the commercial challenges, when we are working particularly, say, with smaller companies and with startups, a lot of those guys are funding through investment or grants. Those investment deals or those grant applications were put in a long time ago, months ago, easily in some cases. In the meantime, everything's gone up. So there's now a gap in actual funding between what they thought they could do with what they can do. You know, let's call it sticker shock. And honestly, that that's a big problem right at the moment. That combined with hesitancy on the investor side is problematic. For medtech in particular, if you want to be a medtech company, like a real mass producing medtech company, You need to have things like guaranteed availability of components. You need second sources, all of this kind of stuff. There's there's been a semiconductor component shortage. And it's not even, by the way, that you can like swap out one resistor for another resistor, because if it's, you know, of a certain class of device, medical device, if you change the resistor to a, a different one, a different brand, it has to go through the entire compliance process again. It's really complicated. There's a medical device company in Sydney that is building a low-cost personal defibrillator that's the size of a iPhone Max. And this is a device that provides shock. The regulatory compliance requirements are significant. So they can't just swap out the components because they can't get supply of one. It doesn't work that way. I mean, they can if they go through the process, but the process is burdensome and time-consuming and expensive, especially if now you're talking about CE mark and FDAs and TGAs and all of that. So, you know, all of these are challenges. And just in general, I find medtech companies get a tough rap because it takes a special sort of investor to invest into a medtech company because most people find it hard. They, they don't understand process and they sort of keep that away. So I've had plenty of investors tell me, you know, I'll, I'll, you know I invest in only B2B software, this, that, the other, but, and no hardware. It's difficult. That sort of thing is difficult to do in Australia. It's less difficult to do in the US. It's a population issue more than anything else, I think. I mean, just generally that, you know, these are all macro issue, issues that we're all facing as an industry and not, not even just an industry within digital health, but across other industries as well. It's a challenging time for all stakeholders across the board. So that's, it's good to reflect and put those in perspective. In terms of digital health generally in Australia, you know, you touched on the point around the challenge of the size of of Australia. I often find Australia is a great one, is seen anyway by organisations as a great place to test a solution out because we've got a good health system on the, you know, on balance. We've got a well-represented population in terms of ethnicity and multiculturalism and everything. But then in terms of scaling a health tech or a med tech business, we've just not got the people and the opportunities that exist. So what's your take on digital health and and the industry in Australia? 
you're right about Australia being a good test bed. It's always been a good test bed for all kinds of technology because we do adopt things. We have a high standard of living and in health in particular, yeah, we have a really good health system. If you, you compare it to other places in the world, I think we do a stellar job. We do have a population, a smaller population, and, and that has the, the challenges I mentioned before. But I do think that the digital health industry as a whole in Australia is moving forward. So I feel like there's a collective momentum happening at the moment. There's innovations all over the place. One of the things that, say, the US has that we previously haven't had is this concept of ecosystem. So when you look at the, let's take the Silicon Valley kind of internet startup concept, all of the people there know each other. I'm exaggerating somewhat, stretching it a little bit, but they know each other. They either went to university, they know someone who knows someone. Um, I mean, I've spent a little bit of time over there, so I get a feel for it. There's an event on every single night you can go to, all of this kind of stuff. They, they do that ecosystem stuff well. And this is what I meant before when I said I think THT is doing a really incredible job is we've always needed these kinds of focal points to bring together industry. And so having knowledge about what someone else's over there is doing and you know, listening to what the challenges of other people are having, I think these are really important and we're benefiting from that. So this is why I feel like there's this collective momentum going on and THC is definitely facilitated there and I think that's incredible. And there are other ones too. All of that is contributing to a better digital health industry as a whole. I appreciate the unsolicited uh, testimonial as well, Robbie. I agree. And there's still a lot of work to do. The We regularly talk of information silos across, even within health system, often one LHD won't know what the other one is doing. And if we can make little steps to, and, and I know that health systems are improving that too. I, and I agree with you. We're seeing as each week goes with all the different players that are trying to make a difference, those little steps will get us a long way. So that is encouraging to see. One thing I could just add to that, I mean, I know that there's quite a lot of activity, especially at the startup end of town, okay? There's a lot of interest in people getting to know each other. There are events where people can attend in Sydney and Melbourne. These are, these are really, really good. I feel that we, in addition to that, we need to really bring in the big end of town. So policymakers, and, and I know that, for example, I was speaking at the Digital Health Festival in April and I saw you there and it was, you know, they had some really high caliber speakers at that particular event. We need to make sure that we're engaging both ends as much as possible and engaging them together. You know, we're able to, one's able to leverage off the other, that we all know what we're doing. Because at the end of the day, all of these incredible startups that are up and coming, all of these amazing wearables that are being developed, all of these technologies, unless they are interoperable with the big end of town, let's call it, okay, it's, it's not the term I would normally use, but, you know, the state governments, the federal governments, the large health clinics, all of that, unless they are working with those guys, they're working on their own and there's no point. I mean, not that there's no point, but it's really not as valuable as working with the big guys as well. It needs to be cohesive. And that's what interoperability will bring together as well. So we need all of these guys working together. Absolutely. And there's a big call for that. I was, at the time of this recording earlier this week, I was in you know workshops that were 
a collaboration between the Australian Digital Health Agency and the Medical Software Industry Association to have engagement from the software industry in terms of, you know, putting together standards and all of those when it comes to procurement of software in healthcare systems. And it's a start. The proof will be in the, that it's not the first time that we've had workshops that open up a dialogue. It's how we continue that conversation and actually see then some true collaboration and participation in putting together these standards and things. There has to be a willingness because everyone's time poor, unless you really want to pursue that, you know, unless it's an agenda item, it's almost always an agenda item for the smaller guys to work with the bigger guys. They want to, that's what they want to be able to do. That for them is their business effectively. And for the bigger guys, they are incumbents. They have their processes and systems. It's a lot harder for them to change. So there needs to really be willingness at that end to engage and move forward. When you're down and talking to individuals, at these kinds of workshops, there's always individual willingness. I find there's understanding, there's willingness, and they want to do something, but there needs to be a bit more. Yes, I agree. That collective viewpoint, because it's one thing to say we have alignment. Let's make it happen, as they say. Robbie, I feel like we could have this conversation for another couple of hours, but we should start wrapping up. Tell us what's on the roadmap for you. What can we look forward to seeing from Fluffy Spider over the next 6, 12, 24? The next 6 to 12 are going to be about growth. As I said, we're hiring people, we're growing organically through these digital health projects. One project will lead to another project. So we're going to grow by focusing on integration with existing systems. We're going to grow by developing these end-to-end solutions for people, hopefully bringing all of these things together. We're going to be incorporating existing standards like HL7. We're going to be on existing kinds of projects. We're going to be using new standards like FHIR on new projects. So that's what we're doing for, say, the next six to 12 months. But after that, I feel like we've been talking quite a lot here internally, and we do have our eye on some sort of product concepts in this space. So it's it's a little bit premature to even talk about it at all. But really, I think there's opportunity there to provide a solution. So that's really, you know, that's where we're going. Love it. Well, look, there'll be plenty of Talking Health Tech listeners and community members who would benefit from reaching out and having a conversation. So we'll put the details for Fluffy Spider and for you, Robbie, in the show notes of this episode for people to check out and get in touch. Got the presence on the Talking Health Tech website through your directory listing as well. So look forward to catching up with you at one of these events coming up soon. And no doubt we'll keep this important conversation going. Appreciate you making the time and coming on the show. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. Before you go, just a reminder to jump over to our YouTube channel and subscribe and watch some episodes there. There are podcast episodes, summit sessions, and a bunch of other interesting content on our channel. You can just search Talking Health Tech in the YouTube app or click on the link in the show notes of your podcast player and it should just take you straight there. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Talking Health Tech. Make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast player and for more information, visit talkinghealthtech.com.